Welcome to What a Word is Worth, a space for creative minds to speak about viable ways to heal the world through writing and other inventive mediums. I am your host, Marianela Medrano, founder of Palabra Training Center, where words are giving us medicine. And today I have the privilege and the happiness, the joy to have with me a guest who has actually influenced my work um, for many years now. And um, he's just here with me, John Evans, who is a writing clinician and integrative health coach who works with groups, individuals, and healthcare professionals, including physicians, nurses, therapists, counselors, psychologists, social workers, educators, personal coaches, and alternative healthcare practitioners, teaching them how to use writing for better physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Evans is a founder and executive director of Wellness and Writing Connections, LLC, and he provides individual group and institutional life course guiding uh, guidance programs. He is also co-author uh, of expressive, expressive Writing, Words That Heal with uh, James Pennebecker and his book, Wellness and Writing Connections, Writing for Better Physical, Mental and Spiritual Health is a collection of essays from the Wellness and Writing Connections conference series. And he has, uh, of course, developed the, all these themes that I just mentioned throughout the years. So um, welcome, welcome, John. Thank you so, so much. I am so grateful to have you here. It's my privilege to speak with you. It's really my pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad that you reached out to me. And uh, it, it, um, it thrills me to think that you uh, have been implementing my work with your work and that we are aligned as we are uh, about the importance of words in how they shape our world uh, and that uh, they can uh, lead us to a healing uh, that's spiritual and mental and uh, also physical. Uh, yes, so, exactly. Um, it's, uh, it's really uh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, answer whatever questions you may have. Yeah, so, so tell, tell us about how did you... Um, came to see language as a healing instrument? Uh, well, I could say it begins with my mother. Uh -huh. <laughs> I like that. You know, um, you know, she read to me when I was a child. Um, I was her firstborn. And um, uh, we spent, you know, so many hours uh, together. She was a very young mother. And she loved to read. Uh, and we had a, a great collection of children's books, you know, that, um, I mean, it would date how old I am if I told you the titles, but, you know, uh, the whole Beatrix Potter collection of Peter the Rabbit and Benjamin Bunny and 
you know, Jeremy Frog and, uh, you know, those things from Beatrix Potter's time. And, and then, you know, the pokey little puppy and, um, you know, nursery rhymes and Mother Goose stuff and things like that. She read to me constantly and I just thought it was magic that she could see these little black marks on a page and make sense of them. And I used to uh, watch her lips move as she read and I would mimic what she did. And, and I, I grew to know the stories by heart. So when I was about two and a half or three years old, I could pretend to read and, and, and do that magic that my mother did. <laughs> and I know yeah. throughout, uh, her life uh, words and books were a tremendous resource for her. And so I, I it probably begins there, you know, that I, I just grew to love what my mother loved and, and I wanted to do what she was able to do. Uh, and so, you know, skip ahead to, uh, I decided to become uh, an English teacher and um, study literature. Um, and I, I, I went into, um, uh, actually went into training to become uh, an English teacher. I was an English, high school English teacher uh, for uh, nine years. Uh, and then I wanted to de you know, dive more deeply. And I went to, um, to, to get a master's in teaching English and then a master's in English itself. Uh, I went to uh, Middlebury College for an MA in, um, in English. And I, I was able, privileged actually to study at Oxford University uh, under some of the leaders in the field at that time. And um, although my emphasis at then was not on health, uh, it was how uh, language could help students learn any subject, how essential language was to learning, and that writing especially was a means through which students could not just prove what they learned, but actually incorporate into, their, uh, into who they were. Uh, so uh, my research interest at Oxford was how to use computers to facilitate the learning process of learning about literature through writing about it. Um, and so I developed an algorithm and um, early programs for that. In 1983, I had one of the first uh, computer labs in the country for high school students to write about the literature they, they were reading. Uh -huh. And I developed processes where if they were reading a Shakespearean play, uh -huh. they could uh, write a summary of the play using the characters' names, and then they could replace the characters' names with names of people they knew around school. And, and that was a great uh, way of getting them to do a character analysis without actually calling it that. Uh, that is so I would beautiful. So, you know, think about somebody around school who reminds you of this character mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in this Shakespearean play. So whether it, was, whether it was much ado about nothing or all's well that ends well or as you like it, um, they would substitute, they would go through and they would do a search and replace and, and in their summary, and they would just replace the names of uh, the people in school with the names of the Shakespearean characters. And then they would read that summary back and they would say, oh, whoa, the, you know, they would have so many of these epiphanies about 
wow, yeah, that's right. That's it. So it made the story really alive for them. And then I developed a number of other techniques to use the power of the computer to not just um, uh, uh, not do a textual analysis, but, uh, but use it to facilitate the reading and writing process. Um, and so it was not a big jump for me when I ran into Jamie Pennebaker's research in 1986, where he was looking at how language could um, influence physical health. Uh, uh, as I did, uh, you know, as I did research about how language improved learning, I kept running into expressive writing studies. And as it happened, my uh, professor at Oxford, uh, James Britton, was the, what they call the father of expressive writing in education. And what he was doing was using expressive writing um, to help students learn more about themselves. Wow. Um, and, and then I would see expressive writing research from Jamie Pinnebaker about how writing and the word choice influenced your stress levels and your health. Uh -huh. And, and, um, and so I would kind of put that aside, you know, and say, one day I'm going to come back to this. So finish that master's degree, finish my doctorate. But always in the back of my mind, I thought one day, uh, <laughs> one day I'm going to spend time learning more about and doing research about how language influences our health and well-being. And so that's what I did. So, um, you know, I became a uh, once I entered academia, I became an English department chair and an associate dean of general ed. And uh, I had then the facilities and the, uh, the necessary means that were needed for me to establish the Wellness and Writing Connections Conferences in 2007. And so my university at the time sponsored our first conference in Atlanta. Um, and then we had wellness and writing connections conferences in 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2010. And then I moved to North Carolina and I began working at Duke Integrative Medicine as a writing clinician. And I developed the course called Transform Your Health, Right to Heal. Um, and then uh, that was for the general population and the clinical population at Duke Integrative Medicine. And then I developed another course for professionals called Leading Others in Writing for Health. And, and that was for people like yourself, uh, physicians, mm -hmm. psychologists, psychiatrists, mm -hmm. social workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, to learn how they could integrate writing into the practice that they use with their, uh, with their patients. And that model then has been um, enlarged a bit from my training with Rick Hansen who is a uh, neuroplastician uh, uh, psychologist. I don't know if you know Rick Hansen's work, but I would highly recommend it, uh, especially his work. Um, uh, one of his works called Buddha's Brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, another, yes. one, another one of his books called Hardwired for, Hardwired for Happiness. Uh, and then he's, he has a book out with his son. I think it's just called Resilience. Yeah. Uh, but um, Rick and I are actually taught at 1440 Multiversity. Um, we, he was teaching on one side of the hall and I was teaching on the other side of the hall. So I got to meet him, we had dinner 
And then uh, he told me there was a training coming up. And, and so I joined his training and I trained with him um, to use uh, what he's learned about neuroplasticity in my work too. And so language is so integral to uh, changing the brain. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, John, I'm, I'm going to stop you here for a little bit to see, to check in. What I hear is that you have been in this um, journey that, that seems like very circular in a way as all good journeys are. <laughs> they're not linear, they're yeah. circular. Um, so you it started with the heart, with um, listening to your mother's read to you and reading her lips and mimicking. And then you travel from that to science and technology and then met Pennebecker and other people. And um, through being a teacher, it seems like you went back to the heart and that you are kind of circling um, in that, um, you know, heart, science, technology, heart again. Is that, did I get it right? It's been an amazing journey. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I absolutely love what I do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I absolutely love working with people and, and uh, helping them become aware of the role that language has in their life. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so give us, let's say that someone is listening to us and is very skeptical saying like, what is that? How can words be given us medicine? Like what, what kind of nonsense is that? How can a word um, heal my back? What will you say to that person? Well, it's, you know, it's very, um, it's very easy to see the physical response that we have to words mm -hmm. uh, because uh, anytime that we hear something that makes us blush, mm -hmm. you know, that's a physical response to language, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, any, anytime we hear a word that makes our heart race mm -hmm. or makes mm -hmm. our stomach fall, mm -hmm. those are physical responses to words. Mm -hmm. Um, somatic illness shows up as a physical response to our environment. Uh, and how we interact with our environment can end up in our body. So we know, we know the work that many people have done about how the body um, the score. Body stores pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the body stores emotional pain. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like this... Uh, this story that Jamie Pinneberg tells about himself and how he mm -hmm. got interested in this work is that um, growing up in East Texas, he had asthma. Mm -hmm. When he went to college in Florida, the asthma went away. He associated it with um, his environment. His, um, you know, it was dusty in East Texas and it was damp and humid in Florida. Um, and then uh, his mother came to visit him in Florida at the college where he was going. And uh, while she was standing there in his room talking with him, he got a severe asthma attack. Uh, and he realized that it was not maybe the dust in East Texas that gave him asthma, uh, but simply because of the stress and the words and the things, the language that was being used there. And oh, 
And that, that really, that triggered him to want to study somatic illness. And he began then after he completed his doctorate and work like that, he became a social psychologist because he thought that the language that is used in groups, whether there are our immediate family or other groups, um, really has an influence on our health and well-being, not just emotional health, but our physical health. And so I think, you know, that's that's so true. It shows up in my life. Uh, and um, uh, I pay attention. I think this process is very mindful. And uh -huh. so pay attention to yeah. your interior monologue uh -huh. or your stream of consciousness. When you begin to pay attention to the language that you use in your head, uh -huh about what's going on outside you, then you begin to see where, if I change my words, I can change my world. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and it is, you know, I think you're pointing to how this is linked, you mentioned mindfulness, right? And mindfulness inscribes itself in the indigenous um, wisdom of the world, the perennial wisdom, right? And yesterday I was talking to a very wise um, shaman from Ecuador, and he was saying, we were talking about language, this was in Spanish, um, but he was talking about language and his, his mission in life has been to rescue the indigenous language, in his case, Quechua. And he was saying that um, when the colonizers came, they took away their language and uh, presented it as the savage thing or the violent thing, and that they started then trying to navigate the natural world. Well, the natural world was so entwined with the language, the native language. And he says, when we wanted um, rain, we will go up to the mountain and, and talk to mother rain and rain will come. But we were using our language. So when they try, they were starving. And he was, he was pointing to two things, you know, the myth of extinction, right? Like not, nothing is extinct. And also this idea of the power, the power of language, that if you, if you change the code, you get different results. So, so, you know, your example of they are with Pennebaker's experience and this, the, the, the uh, code switch that he, he, he did when he moved to Florida and then mom coming and kind of bringing that, those other codes, then his body reacted to that. Yeah. So it's all these, you know, this idea of interconnect interconnectedness that is in the perennial wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that if we know anything, I don't know if you agree with me, but if we know anything is because we have the, um, what Thomas Merton used to call the anonymous um, voice of the collectivity speaking through us. I, I agree with you. Um... I, th I think that's a very powerful concept. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. You remind me of mm -hmm. uh, you remind me of a long essay called mm -hmm. uh, "The Contact Zone." Mm -hmm. So the contact zone is uh, the place where two cultures come together 
and, and they don't know their language. They don't know each other's language. And so they have to navigate this space. Uh, and um, the essayist, um, and I, I'll remember her name eventually, <laughs> but the essayist is talking about how, you know, the, the native um, mm -hmm. speakers tried to communicate with the king of Spain Mm -hmm. say what horrendous things were being mm -hmm. done in, in the mm -hmm. king's name mm -hmm. and look what you look what your people are doing to my people mm -hmm. and so they drew pictures yeah. of um you know decapitations mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know cutting off hands and yeah and just kind of the horrendous things that the spaniards mm -hmm. did when they came mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. south america and central america um and so you know it was his appealing out to her without using symbols uh -huh. uh, to just try to communicate, look. Right, because they were an oral tradition, so they this will use who, symbols. Yeah, yeah. This is not mm -hmm. who we are, and mm -hmm. why are you doing this to us? And, mm -hmm. um, and so it was just a good example of how uh, mm -hmm. important it is for peoples to understand each other and- Yeah. Yeah, and to respect. So one of the things that uh, Don Oscar was saying is that also because they were an oral tradition, um, and this is going back to the uh, neural um, sense of you know the work that that you do there, uh, that he was saying because they were an oral tradition, they work a lot with cadence and and sounds and and the rituals, and it was very uh, a very embodied communication with the cosmos mm -hmm. that um, the newcomers didn't have, right? So how much, I guess my question to you, in your work with people, and once you went into um, the embodiment of your work, uh, how much, what is your sense of how much um, you know, those memories that you mentioned that are, um, that are registered in the body, how much an embodiment approach that includes the use of the senses and the, the use of movement um, can tap into the language that is repressed? Um, what, what has been your experience? Well, I think one of the... Um... One of the most important considerations that I've seen for that mm -hmm. uh, came out of a, a workshop that I did at Earthrise in Petaluma, mm -hmm. California. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know that retreat mm -hmm. center just outside of San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, outside of Berkeley. Um, but it was a retreat uh, for um, Marin County um, family physicians and their spouses and partners. And uh, I had um, a, a yogi uh, that I worked with. And so we developed a workshop to do yoga and expressive writing. And so um, she and I would collaborate on what would be good postures mm -hmm. to open mm -hmm. up the heart mm -hmm. to be receptive to what needed to be said and so as we made the implicit processes in our body explicit through our movements and language, mm -hmm. there was this release mm -hmm. of stress and tension 
And then we work through the, you know, the whole transforming health right to heal model, which begins with expressive writing and it goes through transactional writing, which is really the modes of compassion, forgiveness, and gratitude. And then we work into poetic writing, which is really the metaphoric and story structure of, um, we start with a connection with our body. So I use a poem like otherwise, but excuse me, by Jane Kenyon, where she says, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might've been otherwise. Um, and at the time, you know, she had been diagnosed with lymphoma and uh, this became the title um, of her posthumous collection, you know, that uh, wow. Donald Paul and her husband put together after she died. But this um, poem otherwise was a recognition that language, if the language that I use to describe my day becomes an extended metaphor for how I proceed through my life, knowing that one day it will be otherwise. Um, so I use that poem um, to help people be mindful of their day. Um, and this idea of being an extended metaphor for mm -hmm. your day is what can open up sometimes. Oh, that's right. You know, um, I never really considered it that way. So I have people write their own otherwise poems. Mm -hmm. um, and then we move into a poem that shows the relationship that you have with your body. And I use a poem like um, Lucille Clifton's poem, uh, Homage to My Hips. Mm -hmm. You know, these hips are mighty hips. These hips yeah. are powerful hips. These hips have never been enslaved. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, these hips have been known to, um, um, yeah, That's spin a man very... with a top. Mm -hmm. you, know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and so I have, uh, my students when they write their own homage, I have them do a, a body scan. We do a body scan meditation mm -hmm. from head to toe. And I have them stand imagining in front of a full length mirror and just imagining they're doing a body scan from their top of their head all the way down to their toes. And now what is your relationship to each part of your body that we talk about from your head, your forehead, your eyebrows, your ears, your nose, your chin, your mouth, your shoulders, your chest, your torso, your legs, your knees, you know, and, and people will then write an homage to that part because Lucille Clifton, when I met her in Chicago and I said, Lucille, I'd love to use your poem in my work. And she said, oh, I'd love to have you do that. And, you know, and she was a, a, a good sized lady who had yeah, yeah. always cursed her hips. <laughs> and, and she said, you know, I just got tired of cursing my hips. And so one day I just decided I'm going to praise my hips. I'm going to give homage to my hips. And so I said, that's what this is, opportunity is for. Let's get in touch with our bodies and those areas that have been a challenge to us. Let's flip that. Let's mm -hmm. flip that by flipping the language that we have used to describe that. So if you have had a challenge with your hair or you've had a challenge <laughs> with your nose or your ears or your mouth or whatever it is, let's praise that body part and flip the switch on that um, by using different language to appreciate what it is. So you're super conscious about having hair on your arms. You know, those are the arms that you've held your babies with. 
those are the arms that you've held your your love lovers with. Uh, those those are the arms that keep you warm at night. And and so just uh, we also move into poetry to um, give ourselves permission to do what we've wanted to do, but we haven't had the courage to do. Um, and so that model has is the model that we've used to. Uh, encourage people to look at different ways that language can be used in our everyday lives. Um, so from there, we go into affirmative writing, which recognizes our strengths. Um, and then we project ourselves six months into the future mm -hmm. using uh, mm -hmm. present tense, you know, I am, mm -hmm. I want mm -hmm. to be, or I wish, mm -hmm. or I will. But we make I am statements as if what we, um, intend for ourselves six months from today we write about it as if it is at now so wow wow john i i really i'm i'm listening to you and again i i i can't help it but to go back to the perennial wisdom and and even if we think about what mindfulness uh, the foundation of mindfulness it's like it's so i can't help it but hear it in what you're saying, like it's the awareness of the body. It begins there, you know, with the opening the heart, of course, and from there flows the heart is the center of, of the self. So from there flows everything. And then the awareness of feelings, which is not so much the, the feelings as, as emotions, but as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, right? Identify, engaging um, into the body more further. And then the awareness of thinking, the contemplation of consciousness, and then the whole bringing all together um, through the awareness of understanding. I mean, in, in, in Buddhism, um, is done understanding of the Dharma. But for what the way I'm seeing what you're saying is that then in here is the understanding of the selfhood um, and these inner and outer um, experiences that people are are having. Um, I get I get so excited and so affirmed to hear your your process. It, it, it reminds me of what I feel when I'm. Um, reading you or Penny Becker and and I'm always like yes 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 this is what can help people yeah, <laughs> yeah um, that's a beautiful model um, part part of the model involves legacy writing as well mm -hmm. and there so so uh, that's from, it from affirmative writing we go into mm -hmm. legacy writing which is to say you know one of the first uh, exercises in legacy writing is to think of six words that you wish people would use when they describe you to someone who does not know you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then write about what is important to you about those words. Mm -hmm. um, not why do you want people to use those words, but what is important to what you important. about their using those words to describe you. And then we talk about, in legacy writing, we talk about, um, you know, writing to encourage those people who are closest to us to know those things about us that they may not know. Because uh -huh. people who are even the closest, nearest and dearest family members may think they know us, but do they really know 
mm-hmm. what we mm-hmm. have thought of as our purpose? Mm-hmm. Do they mm-hmm. really know how important it is that we speak uh, all goodwill toward each other with compassion, loving kindness, and non-judgment? Uh, so that mindfulness is woven in and out of my model. And so the, the final um, stage my model, which actually is not in the book, because mm-hmm. I developed it after the book was published, but I studied with John Kabat-Zinn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I looked at his full catastrophic living, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he talks about the seven aspects of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And I took those seven aspects and I changed them to A words mm-hmm. so that they could be easily remembered. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment uh, with uh without judgment yeah with mm-hmm. compassion loving kindness mm-hmm. and non-judgment mm-hmm. uh, but it begins with awareness mm-hmm. and so my process is and this is an exercise that i i can do with people to demonstrate this model and it's very quick mm-hmm. you can do it in six minutes where you say okay so considering the challenges that you face just now Uh, I'd like you to finish this sentence stem. Considering the challenges I face with my health, I am aware that. Hmm. And you finish that sentence stem. And then you go to the next one. The A word was aware. Now the next word is attention. Considering the challenge I face, let's say with my present spine tumor, I find myself paying attention to. So it's awareness and then attention. And I write about that. And then the next word is acceptance. So when I think about the challenge I have with my spinal surgery, I accept that. And we write about that. Uh, And then the next word is um, affection. So as I consider the challenges I have with my spinal surgery, I have um, affection for, and I would complete that sentence. And then the next word is appreciation. Uh, So when I consider the spinal surgery that I'm going to have, I have appreciation for, uh, and then the final word is affirmation. Uh, When I consider the challenges that I have with the spinal surgery coming up, I affirm that. And so the words are, you know, just simply awareness, attention, attention. acceptance, uh, uh, affection, affection, appreciation, yeah. and then affirmation. Affirmation, yeah. So just yeah. in a very short term, I, I gave a, um, a talk about a month ago to um, a group of pharmacists. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, the people sponsoring it wanted to have something that was kind of off the chart, uh, different for their pharmacy, because it's all about science and it's all about uh-huh. this. What could you do to quickly demonstrate to a pharmacist how they could relieve some stress in their lives? Uh-huh. And I said, well, let's just do the mindful writing. Yeah. And so I did, so I led them through the six parts of mindful writing. And I had a pharmacist comment after that. He says, you know, I'm not one who gets in touch with his emotions very much, but this exercise 
opened up a whole world to me. And he was almost in tears as he described how powerful that experience was for him. Um, so I, I would encourage you to, and your listeners to, to try that little exercise. Um, when they think about a challenge they come up with, I think about the pain that's in their body. Uh, when I experience the pain in my body, I am aware that. Uh, I am paying attention to. Uh, I accept that. Um, I have affection for. I appreciate that. I affirm that. Oh, I am in this experience. You know, uh, yes, I mean, um, I, I, it, this brings me back again with the conversation I had with Don Oscar yesterday, where the way he was saying, he was saying that in his tradition, illness, uh, he was talking about COVID-19. Um, he was saying that in his tradition, illness is seeing is treated as a person, right? So you have to get to know the person and you have to integrate the person into the community. And that's how you get to know um, what to do next. And he was saying that they had determined that COVID-19 is a woman and that they are treating it as a woman. I have to yet continue my conversation with him to see what to unpack that further. Um, but you know what you the the steps uh, the A steps that you are mentioning and specifically the affection um, step uh, really resonates with me and also brought me back to to that conversation that and again it's just to say that this is the perennial wisdom that that you are um, highlighting here and that that's why I'm imagining whenever you bring it to um, you know, to places like that individual who is not easily moved and found himself moved by what you're saying was because it, it makes sense. It's part of um, our, to use the word of Tignaham, our interbeing, how everything is so interrelated. And that's, I think that's what you captured in, in the way that you designed um, this implementation of the A's. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you for that uh, recognition. I, I really mm. appreciate that. Uh, and aside from just our feeling good about mm -hmm. what it does, one of the things that I wanted to do, we, we had so much anecdotal information being collected mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. our workshops and from the evaluations that participants would uh, complete after mm -hmm. the workshops. I, I went to the director of research at Duke Integrative Medicine, mm -hmm. uh, who is, was Wool, uh, Ruth Woolover, mm -hmm. who's now at Vanderbilt, but um, she was at Duke for many years. And she said, yeah, John, we should, we, we should test your model. And so- It's been tested. <laughs> and so I, I really wanna, you know, I'm a big fan of what works. Uh, you know, and and so I, I thought, oh, this would be great. And so the director of Duke Integrative Medicine at the time, Adam Perlman, who's now with the Mayo Clinic, um, uh, he said, yeah, let's take John's work to the next level and let's show that there is an evidence base for what he's doing. And so he, he uh, opened the uh, purse strings and um, was able to sponsor my first uh, research 
on uh, the model that I had developed there. So the model Transform Your Health Right to Heal is a six-week model that includes those six types of writing, expressive writing, transactional writing, poetic writing, uh, affirmative writing, legacy writing, and mindfulness, uh -huh. uh, mindful writing. Uh, we wanted to test that. We have four assignments, four exercises in each type. And um, so we wanted to just test to see if we could measure what effects that had. So in 2016, um, we recruited uh, people to take part in our study. Well, we had over a hundred responses mm -hmm. to uh, our study. And, and so we, we uh, went to the IRB and, and said, um, you know, we need permission to do this study. And uh, they, they granted us permission for 30 people. And, and we said, well, we've got this overwhelming response. We had over 100 people within 24 hours of our announcement. And so we, uh, we, we went back to them and said, well, can we enlarge it to at least 40 people? Um, and, and we settled on 40 because that was the largest room we could get that would allow us privacy uh, for people to write and uh, to do the study. So, so before the study began, uh, we had, we had re received four, we confirmed 40 participants and they were to come to Duke Integrative Medicine on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock. And they would write in the workshop from 10 until 12. Uh, and we did four exercises each Saturday for six weeks. Uh, we did not provide them with any stipend. Uh, they didn't get they didn't they were not provided with refreshments or transportations or, or anything <laughs> they just came volunteered they sat down they took the assignments uh and they wrote uh and they did post writing reflections between each piece of writing uh -huh. well we we uh before the study began we measured their depression uh -huh. we measured their perceived stress we measured rumination and re we measured resilience uh, and at the end of the study, we measured those same things using the same instruments. And you know what? Not only did we have good results, we have a 97% compliance. Only one person did not complete the study. And that's because she had to have emergency surgery before we began. Uh, one other person did not fill out the final questionnaire. But otherwise, we had a 97% compliance. So, you know, if you've ever done a research project, you, you, <laughs> you know that, that that in itself is pretty phenomenal. So it, it proves yeah. that it's mm -hmm. feasible and acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, but then we also had this terrific response in lowering mm -hmm. depression almost 30 points. Mm -hmm. 30 points. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. better than an antidepressant. Yes, <laughs> I will say so. And, and you know, um, thank God that, that you have done um, this work and you continue and I can, I, I see the enthusiasm with which you, you talk about this beautiful journey you have taken and, and it has changed, right? It has changed um, institutions uh, from the inside out. Yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. I can speak about that from the, the perspective of Duke. I can't speak uh -huh. 
lot of from mm -hmm. other institutions. But mm -hmm. you know, in that study, we showed that we lowered perceived stress. Yes. Uh, we we lowered uh, rumination. Mm -hmm. we, we lowered depression, and we mm -hmm. raised resilience. Yes. Um, yeah. And then yeah. taking that study uh, in 2016, when COVID came along, mm -hmm. uh, we decided let's try to use this model for people who are experiencing the effects of the pandemic. And so in 2020, uh, we devised two studies. One was for people who were experiencing um, challenges with the pandemic, just in a general way. And then we also devised a study for parents who had children at home under the age of 18, because we felt like that was a subset uh, that was very specific uh, and uh, very vulnerable to the effects of a pandemic. We've got parents at home with children under 18. They're trying to do school at home. The parents are trying to work at home and there's a lot of stress. So we recruited them uh, and we conducted both of those studies uh, in the summer of 2020. So the pandemic had just yeah. blossomed, okay. right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and we developed this, two, two of these programs. So they were both, um, what was fascinating about this, I think, is that th these were not face-to-face -face meetings. Mm -hmm. Again, we had this terrific response. Mm -hmm. We had over 60 people who, who were part of this study. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was called, I think, Expressive Writing for Resilience During COVID-19. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we used the same measures that as we used in 2016, reduced you know, perception, uh, perceived stress, rumination, mm -hmm. depression, resilience. And then we added one more, and that was post-traumatic growth. Yes. Could we measure post-traumatic growth? And so we used the same writing, pretty much the same writing prompts, the expressive writing, the transactional, poetic, uh, affirmative, legacy, and mindful. Uh, they were six weeks. We met for an hour and a half each night for six weeks. And the results were almost exactly the same as the 2016 study. Mm -hmm. And then we had the same kind of results with parents. And so we, we published both of those studies. Those studies were published in uh, contemporary therapies in, in clinical practice. Um, so um, the latest one was just published in November of 2021. Uh, and so I think I saw that I'm one, just yeah. so happy to mm. uh, say that mm. now we have a research base yeah. that supports the model. Yes. That includes, yeah. This is something that no one has done. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's a unique program because... Mm -hmm we've always kind of had a hunch that poetic writing is good for us. Mm. We've had a hunch that gratitude writing is good for us. We've had a hunch that we know that expressive writing is good, but mm. we had not tested these other types of writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these studies have shown that we now have clinical evidence, empirical evidence that shows that yes, 
we can write, we can learn and we can teach people to write things that will help lower depression, perceived stress, rumination, and increase resilience. We know that it can increase uh, post-traumatic growth. And so these, these actions that we do with words are generative. Yes. They are, they are life-giving. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Change our words, change our world. Yeah. Which brings Beauty. me now then back to the institutions that we're mm -hmm. influencing because uh, using that model, mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to do another study that was uh, sponsored by the Bass Connections at Duke. Um, and we did a study on uh, expressive writing for resilience among pediatric oncology patients and their caregivers. Wow. So people who had pediatric cancer uh -huh. and their parents, we got them uh -huh. together and they each wrote and then we brought them together and they talked about what they wrote. That was our model. And then that developed into my teaching pre-med students for two semesters, how to use this model with their future patients and with their future works. So it, it changed the way the institution would uh, look at the tools they could give to pre-med students early on in their career so that it would change their attitude toward taking care of themselves, but also then future taking care of their patient. All about the power of language to not only communicate you know, the essentials uh, in terms of their care, but to communicate how important it is to choose words to describe our experience that support our experience and that benefit us. Um, so, you know, we've done that study and, um, and that's an institutional change, but the, the most current one is one that I'm doing with the Duke Institute for Brain Sciences. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, we're doing a collaborative work with um, a group in Durham called Together for Resilient Youth. Uh -huh. And so uh -huh. I'm training 66 um, addiction counselors uh -huh. and community leaders to use the model, um, use the Transforming Health Right to Heal model in their work in the community. Uh, and so that training is going on right now. Every Tuesday night for the last five weeks, I've been meeting with 66 people on a Zoom call to uh, teach them the model. And then um, before I knew I was gonna have surgery next Friday, um, we were gonna have a two and a half day workshop uh, which would help them become facilitators. So I'm going to certify them to become expressive writing facilitators, but that, that workshop will probably be in April. But that's how it has changed institutions, at least at Duke, um, to, to and in the community of Durham, to say yeah. that, okay, now we're going out into the community and we're going to teach people in the community how changing their language can change their world. And so we've actually called this project change your words, change your world. Mm -hmm. That was what brought us together. So yeah. <laughs> thank you so, so much, John, for this. There is so much I can say um, about it. Um, I feel like I want you back here to continue another conversation um, to expand on this, uh, particularly, you know, how you know, what's happening, the way I see you and, and others, uh, other researchers is that you are the keeper 
of, of the perennial wisdom. Um, that that's what research, you know, research that's done with the heart um, really seals the, the, the wisdom um, of so many uh, global traditions, seal and shows why um, it is so healing and so, um, you know, these, the, the, what you have done with your work is truly shift paradigms at all levels. And the beauty is that your work is generalizable, like people can take what you're doing. It's not just what you're doing at your, your university or in North Carolina, but how many people for how many um, corners of the world are benefiting from this. So I, I thank you for that. And in closing, I wanna ask you, I also want to thank you for using yourself as for using your personal experience to illustrate um, what, what you do, the work you do, and for sharing with us about your back issues and, and the upcoming surgery. Um, sending lots of light and love in your direction as you go through the surgery and asking you if um, your last words for today, but hoping that you will come back and we can continue the conversation. Well, before we end, uh, I would just like to say uh, what I often say at the end of some of my workshops. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is language that I use to support myself Mm -hmm. and I hope that your listeners will use this kind of language to support themselves too. Mm -hmm. But it is a kind of a meta um, meditation. Uh, and um, it goes like this. Uh, so may you be well. May you be safe. May you be peaceful and at ease. And may you be loved. Beautiful. I do live by those words. <laughs> so thank you so, so much. Um, and thank you for listening to What a Word is Worth. You can access today's interview at Anchor or YouTube. And if you are interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast, podcast app. And also, if you find our program beneficial, leave us a review. I am with you in love and compassion always.